Hello, my name is Anthony. You are listening to the Ton of Questions podcast. The goal here is to answer questions for those who are curious and to spark curiosity in the minds of those who are not, who may be listening. Have you got a question? Let me know. Let's get started. Drones. Small unmanned aerial vehicles. Small unmanned aerial systems. This will sound familiar to our nuclear episodes, but the sentiment is the same. Some people love them, some despise them. But no matter which camp you reside, they're here to stay. They're ubiquitous, they're everywhere. They're helpful, fun, save money, reduce risk. What are your thoughts? Welcome to the Ton of Questions podcast. This is episode 17, the third episode of this multi-episode series on small unmanned aerial vehicles. I am Anthony and I will be your host today and we are going to have a fast-paced, high-altitude, yes pun intended, high-altitude discussion on drones. Let's get started, shall we? I said this in the previous two episodes of the series, but it's important enough that it bears repeating. Your drone is not a toy. It can represent a risk to yourself, bystanders, the nearby infrastructure, and national security. We've talked about some of the regulatory matters that drone pilots face, and I went into a bit of detail regarding the Idaho State Drone Law in our last episode. Again, do I think all of the drone regulations are legit and should stand as they are? I'll still answer this question the same way. It's a big, fat, hairy, it depends. That's a hard question to answer. We'll try and tackle it here tonight. Before we even get started into this section, I want to be very clear. While I am an experienced, certificated Part 107 pilot, yes, that's the correct term, certificated, crazy, odd, I thought it was wrong at first too, I am no attorney, and this is a podcast. This episode is just simply me relaying my experiences in this field. This episode is for entertainment purposes only. If you listened to the previous drone episodes, you heard me pose the question, where does pursuit of happiness of a drone pilot end and a government's responsibility to protect itself and its citizens begin? You heard me talk about my views and opinions on Idaho State Statute 21-213 and how I believe that that law is unconstitutional as it stands. What does it take to fight that? Based on my understanding of the way the court system works, I cannot just say, hey, I'd like a day in court to say this is unconstitutional. I would be denied because the law says that I don't have standing. I need to first get in trouble with the law, which I do not plan on doing, before I could fight the unconstitutionality of it. Moving on with our episode tonight, part five, who governs the sky? We will start the answer to this question with who regulates the airspace? The answer to that question is that the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, is the United States federal agency that is solely responsible for regulating the national airspace. You can look this up by starting with Title 49 of the United States Code, paragraph 40103, entitled Sovereignty and the Use of Airspace. In a fact sheet released by the FAA on July 14th of 2023, entitled Quote, state and local regulation of unmanned aircraft systems fact sheet, unquote. It says, in part, the general balance between federal and state authority in the context of aviation regulation is well established. The Federal Aviation Administration has the exclusive authority to regulate aviation safety and the efficient use of the airspace by aircraft. Attempts by state and local governments 
to regulate in those fields are preempted, which is, that's the end of the quote, but that's derived from the supremacy clause of the United States Constitution. The FAA defines two categories of airspace as regulatory and non-regulatory. There is no airspace that is, quote, unregulated. So we've got regulatory and non-regulatory. Within those two categories, there are four types. Controlled airspace, uncontrolled airspace, special use, and other airspace. What airspace gets which classification depends on the complexity or the density of aircraft movement, nature of the operations conducted within the airspace, the level of safety required, and the national or public interest. The first category, controlled airspace, is broken into five classes. We've got class Alpha or class A, class Bravo, class Charlie, class Delta, and class Echo. Uncontrolled airspace is considered class G or class Golf airspace. Special use airspace, also known as special area of operation airspace, is designated for airspace where Certain activities must be confined or where limitations may be imposed on aircraft operations that are not part of those activities. These areas are depicted on charts that pilots use. All pilots, including drone pilots, use or should use those charts. Areas may be prohibited flight areas, restricted areas, warning areas, airspace where military operations are performed. There are several others, but you get the idea. The next category, other airspace, includes a bunch of things. Local airport advisories, temporary flight restrictions, that's a big one for drone pilots, and we need to pay attention to TFRs, temporary flight restrictions. There are other activities such as parachute jump uh, operations, national security areas. P.S. Don't fly your drone near the White House. Yeah, there was a drone pilot who decided he was going to fly a drone up over the fence towards the White House and thought it was okay. Anyhow, the list of other airspace goes on for a while. This is not a drone pilot lesson, just a discussion about airspace. I've flown a considerable number of hours as a Part 107 certificated pilot. I've flown commercially and I've also flown for pleasure as well. I applied for and got approved and authorized to fly my drone in a couple areas along the Las Vegas Strip which is classified as Class B, Class Bravo airspace. I actually, that was an interesting trip. I actually didn't even get to fly. It was late at night, but again, Las Vegas is going 24-7. I was by myself, and when I went through my my pre-flight checks, there was so much magnetic interference that I could have turned off those sensors on my drone but it didn't make sense for me to do it. So from a safety perspective, I aborted my flight. I'll try it another time next time I'm down there. Anyway, other missions I've flown, for instance, one was in Salt Lake City airspace and I was right next to Hill Air Force Base. I had to apply for a waiver in order to do that. That waiver was granted. I flew my mission. Being from a relatively rural area up here in Southeast Idaho, uh, most of my flights are in class golf airspace. I've flown a considerable number of hours in uncontrolled airspace. Regardless, what is it that I've been saying all throughout this podcast is your drone is not a toy. I don't look at my drone as a toy. Whether I'm flying in class golf airspace or whether I'm flying in a, a downtown highly populated area, I still follow all the regulations. It comes back to the question that I asked in the last episode. Where does the pursuit of happiness end 
and a government's responsibility to protect itself and its citizens begin? That's the question. What I said there, what I said in the last episode is, it's a very difficult question if you ask me, but does it really need to be that difficult? Last episode, we talked about a a few matters of the Supreme Court case law. A question that I believe it comes down to is people's actual right to privacy and people's perceived right of privacy. I told you the story about how I've been on both sides of that argument. Before I became a drone pilot, there was a, a drone flying over my backyard and I was not too happy about it. Now I've become a drone pilot and I understand sometimes you're going to have to fly over houses. So we get back to perceived right of privacy or legitimate expectation of privacy. If you haven't heard the previous episode in this series and you want more detail about this, if you're coming in new into this episode, um, feel free to go back and listen to the previous episode. I'm going to give you a couple of the stepping stones as a review for this conversation. Again. I'm just going to reemphasize I am no attorney. So these are my stepping stones along the path of the story. There was a landmark decision in the Supreme Court in 1967, Charles Katz versus the United States. It was largely a Fourth Amendment issue, but it opened the box on the subject of expectant right of privacy. Charles Katz was alleged to be involved in illegal gambling activities and used a payphone booth outside his apartment. He was unaware that the FBI began investigating him, and it was recording his side of the conversation while he was in an enclosed phone booth via a covert listening device that was attached to the outside of the phone booth. The FBI used the recordings as evidence in the trial that Katz was subsequently convicted. On appeal, the Court of Appeals affirmed the conviction. The Supreme Court disagreed, holding that the petitioner's Fourth Amendment rights were violated because he had a reasonable expectation of privacy in the enclosed phone booth. This question brought on what has become known as the Katz test, which has become very important in light of technological advances and the government's increased capability for surveillance of personal data. A person cannot have a reasonable expectation of privacy for things that have been put out into the public space. The term private residence is where we're going with this. That's one of the examples in the CATS test. In my house, my living room, bedroom, closet, etc. Yes, I have an expectant right of privacy. What about in my backyard? That is where things go haywire. In the previous episode, we mentioned Florida v. Riley was a United States Supreme Court decision that held that police officials do not need a warrant to observe an individual's property from public airspace. Going back to Idaho 21-213, 21-213 holds that law enforcement is required to have a search warrant in order to fly over one's backyard if they're using it in their investigation. In any case, going back to Riley, vital to the court's ruling was the fact that the helicopter did not interfere with the normal use of the property. There's another Supreme Court decision, not going to talk about it much here, you check out last week's episode to catch the, the details on it. But that case was California versus Sarah Olo, who was found guilty. The United States Supreme Court reversed the California Court of Appeals in a 5-4 majority, thus backing the use of an aircraft flying over a property. But people do not like drones flying over them or over their property. I'm not advocating governmental free use. 
fly their drones everywhere, but I don't know if I agree that a search warrant is necessary for a law enforcement officer to fly a drone over a residential property. Where does the line get drawn for where I have an expectant right of privacy and where I do not? Put drones aside for a moment. What about satellite capabilities these days? Ever since I was a kid in the 1970s, I've heard people saying that the government has satellites that have the ability to take a picture from a satellite and they can get in so close they could read the license plate. I had and I still have my doubts about that technology in the 1970s, but what about now? Current day? Absolutely believe that a satellite can take a picture of a license plate. How about we say that if you're outside and you can be photographed by a satellite, in other words, you can see the sky, then you have no reasonable expectation of privacy. What about that? Hmm, I'm going to start a dumpster fire here in a minute if I keep this conversation going. Anyway, I just, I really need to overstate this. I'm not advocating we use drones to spy or violate privacy. And I know that there needs to be a divider between what is legal and what is not. But at this point, the pendulum is swinging heavily against the drone pilot. Yes, there are pilots who don't care about the regulations. And yes, there are pilots who do not know the regulations. And yes, there are pilots who know the regulations and don't care about them anyway. There is definitely a basis to require regulation for operating a drone. I think a good common sense approach would be that if you are a reasonable distance away from airports and any heliports that might be in the area, and you are in a populated area, then anything under 50 feet above ground level should be free to fly. But with current law, this is not possible due to the definition of airspace, and that is definitely not a simple thing to go back and redefine. In fact, I believe that would be opening Pandora's box. Moving along, we know that the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, is responsible for all regulatory affairs in terms of the airspace. Well, then the national parks got involved. They wanted to get their fingers into the regulation of all this drone business. The states each have, in one way or another, gotten involved, and so have a number of cities, too. The FAA regulates the airspace, and it's illegal for another entity to add laws or to take laws away from the FAA when it comes to airspace. It is not legal for the Department of the Interior, who oversees the national park system, it's not legal for Department of Interior to create a law that says it's not legal to fly a drone in a national park. It is, however, within their power to say that no person may legally take off or land a drone within the park. This battle has been fought by drone pilots and lost every time. It usually winds up in, at a minimum, the drone gear getting confiscated. In some cases, I've read stories where the pilot was arrested. Does that mean that I cannot legally fly in a national park? Well, here again, my disclaimer is that I'm not an attorney, I'm not giving legal advice, and I'm personally not going to take my aircraft out and test this, but technically, yes. Technically, I can legally fly into and out of a national park. They're not listed as no-fly zones, just the National Park Service has listed them as a no-takeoff and a no-landing zone. Technically speaking, letter of the law stuff, I can stand outside of the XYZ National Park, take off, fly into the park, then fly out of the park, and the National Park Service rangers 
I'm going to use the word should, air quotes, should technically have no authority to do anything to me. I wouldn't test this theory out myself. And neither should you. Not to mention, Part 107 Drone Law says that I cannot fly my drone beyond visual line of sight. I must be able to maintain visual contact with my unaided eye wherever I fly. So if someone were to decide to take this mission on, they would not be able to go very far into the national park before needing to circle around due to loss of visual contact with the aircraft. Okay, so National Park Service says it's a no-go for national parks. Forget getting footage of the Grand Tetons. Forget about getting footage of Mount Rushmore. Definitely forget about the Grand Canyon if you fly legally. There are various sources out there that say what states are better or worse for flying drones, and when I started researching, I found that many are biased in one direction or another. The more common one surprised me. It ranked states better that actually had more restrictive drone requirements. And then I realized that the perspective of this alleged survey was from a big business drone transport perspective and actually advocated for stricter compliance to the requirements. Those with a company with deeper pockets could get along with, but a solo entrepreneur pilot could not. Is there a justification for rules that are in place? Sadly, yes, because there are those who either willfully ignore or are ignorant of the safety matters at hand. Then each time there's a mistake, and and I'm not sure which pilot is worse. I'm not sure whether I'd rather have a bunch of pilots that didn't know the regulations out there flying or the same number of pilots that knew the regulations and violated them anyway. I, I could see pros and cons for both. What I would advocate for is pilots that both know the laws, know the regulations, and follow them. Then each time a drone pilot, regardless of whether they knew better or not, violates a rule or regulation, Those people who are against the drones have more momentum and apparent purpose to tighten the law down even further. And there are a lot of drone pilots out there who buy a drone, they want to go fly, and then when things get too strict, they'll be like, oh, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore, and then they'll sell their aircraft online. But what it does is it takes those of us who are invested in the hobby, invested in in the business, whatever level we're into it for, and we want to keep doing it, and we're trying to do it legally, but the laws keep ratcheting down tighter and tighter. As I was researching the topic, I came across an enforcement action against the pilot for flying his aircraft, getting it stuck on top of a very large stadium. If I said the name, you'd automatically know where I'm talking about. Then, as the write-up described, the drone operator, and, and I can't use the term pilot, in reference to this individual. The drone operator then flew a second drone up to attempt to recover the first drone. The first drone got stuck because he was on the far side. He was beyond visual line of sight, couldn't see his drone. Interference played a part. The drone lost connection with the remote, and the drone went into return home mode, or RTH. It's a responsibility of the pilot to program the remote, which in turn sends a signal to the drone, the proper response for return home. This drone operator was describing the return home function set to 65 feet, 
Well, he's on the other side of a stadium that's taller than 65 feet. So when the drone lost contact, it decided it was going to fly home. It increased altitude to 65 feet and promptly flew into the building. If I were the FAA investigator, I'd describe it this way. It would have been easier to list the rules that this operator did not violate than to list the ones that he did. I digress. I give more details on this, however. Um, I learned about this on a website, and that person, while sharing this, air quotes, publicly available information, you can't just go online and get it. This particular person who wrote this article had to submit a Freedom of Information Act request, and I'm not sure that that makes it then become public information that I could share the details of it. If you're curious, go online. It's not that hard. It's not that difficult to find. Um, I'll bet if you use the search term drone operator flies drone into stadium, I, I think it'd probably come up pretty easily. Anyhow, I'm not sure what details I can give without venturing into copyright infringement, so I'm going to leave it at that. I might send out a few Freedom of Information Acts regarding drone violations and enforcement actions myself and see what I find. It seems that enforcement actions against drone pilots or pilots altogether are not accessible via web. I came across another individual, details also gained through someone else's FOIA request, so I won't go into the details of it, but this individual was fined a significant amount of money based on an amount, some amount that was greater than $1,500 per violation. So we'll say $1,500 times X number of violations, and it was an insane number. The individual was flying his drone in a crazy, non-compliant fashion, but in the process he collected some amazing footage of the city of brotherly love, one Philadelphia. It was I remember seeing these videos when they came out. They have since been taken down. It was a first-person drone, and he was flying up one building and then down the next. It made you feel like you were Superman flying through the the big city of Philadelphia. This individual was busted and fined based on the final video that he shared. This individual was investigated and then consequently fined based on the final video that he shared. The authorities don't have to get you while you're in flight. If you post a video to social media and they pick it up, they've got all the proof, all the evidence that they need. I'm about at the typical length that I like to keep my episodes, so I'm going to bring this one in for a landing. Yes, another airplane pun. I'll do more digging throughout the week on specific states that are drone-friendly compared to those who are not so drone-friendly. I'm interested in your thoughts. Leave me a voice message through my website, www.tonofquestions.com. Tell me what your thoughts are. What solutions do you think there are? What position do you hold? With that, I believe I'm going to close out this episode. As I mentioned in all of my episodes, I am asking people to reach out to me if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of the podcast regarding this or any other topic. You can ask questions about the content that we've covered so far, or if you're knowledgeable on the subject, I welcome you to add to what I've said, or even to oppose what I've said. I'm open to a good discussion. If you're one that feels like every single state should remove every single drone regulation, Let's have a conversation. I'm not sure I'm in your camp. 
If you're coming at this from the perspective of you think drones should be outlawed and not even allowed to be sold, please come on, come on, let's do an episode. I certainly don't agree with you, and I'm sure we could have a good discussion. I would love to have you share your knowledge and thoughts, feelings, beliefs, opinions, or even if you have fears about drones. I'm going to call this a wrap. With that, I'm going to close out and wish you a wonderful rest of your day or night, as the case may be. This has been an episode of the Ton of Questions podcast. I hope you've enjoyed our time together. If you have any feedback, I'd love to hear it. Head on over to www.tonofquestions.com. Leave me a speak pipe message to share your thoughts. It's as simple as leaving a voicemail. Thanks for listening and come back soon.